Home isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Like curling up in a comfy chair while it's cold outside. With a warm drink, or maybe even a wine in hand. As you watch the world go by outside your window. Mmm, short rib. Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking. Which is why at Delta, our people do our best to make you feel at home. Refill? Long before you get there. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. Now I'm going to make this intro as brief as possible because my guest really needs no introduction. Her name is Greta Thunberg, the leading climate justice activist in uh, maybe, maybe of all time, but I'd say definitely of our generation. She is just one of the most phenomenal icons ever. And to have had the opportunity to sit down with her and chat and get to know the human being behind all of this change and all of this work and all of this passion was such a treat because she's fantastic. She's funny. She's warm. She's cool. She's so insightful and has done all of this with such grace and dignity in the face of people treating her with such wild disrespect and mistrust. I uh, I think you're going to fall in love with her the way that I did. I already loved her from afar, but now my heart is bloody bursting. It's bursting, guys. In this chat, we discuss climate justice. We discuss the issue of climate change and how it rests with just a few powerful people and not the average citizen. We discuss the knowledge gap and what actually is causing the climate change crisis and what the average person can do to help. We talk about Greta's mental health journey and how it has been impacted by becoming such a ginormous public figure at such a young age and moving in such adult forums. And we discuss her autism diagnosis and how her autism has actually helped her work as an activist. So I, without further ado, because I just can't wait for you to hear this chat. This is, oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. This is Greta Thunberg. Enjoy. Jesus Christ on a bicycle. Greta Thunberg, welcome to I Way. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here. I have loved you for such a long time and we have only ever communicated in these kind of tiny little nuggets online and I've wanted to be able to sit down and chat to you for so long and I can't tell you well, how likewise. much I appreciate. Thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you making time. You have a an absurd schedule and life. Um <laughs> First of all, how have you been? That's a, a difficult question to ask, mm -hmm. but overall, um, it's been good. It's been quite intense, but I'm graduating now soon. So then school will be done at least. And then I will start uni probably. So that's like personally. Overall, activism is always crazy and there are always hundreds of thousands of things to do, but we're managing. Mm -hmm. How how have you been doing? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I have similar kind of chaoses and very different ones all at the same time, but I completely understand what you're saying. Um, and yeah, I uh, currently I'm in a good place. Thank you for asking, but um, but sometimes it can get the better of me. And and I wonder, 
when I ask how you are, like, how do you feel at the moment? (laughs) (laughs) Is that Um, an awkward question to ask you? No, but it's not a question that people often ask me. Um, I, activism uh, fills my life with meaning and Mm -hmm. it makes me feel like I'm doing something useful. Um, But of course there are ups and downs, especially when, when you are, fighting against something so much larger than you, something that has so much more power than you. Um, and even though, of course, we are many people on our side fighting against this, but of course it, it can get quite tiresome sometimes. And people often say to us when they see us, oh, thank you for, for your work. Thank you for doing this. Um, I feel so much hopeful now. Um, and we're like, well, you shouldn't be because... Hope is something that you have to create yourself. If you're relying on some almost burnt out teenagers um, for you to be hopeful, that doesn't sound very sustainable. That doesn't sound very hopeful to me. Absolutely. And you talk about the fact that there are many of you who are fighting for climate justice. And then there is, I think, a smaller minority of people being very loud who actively Mm. fight against it, uh, who don't believe it, who engage in frequent gaslighting around the issue, normally because they're living in countries that aren't seeing the direct impacts of the climate crisis. Um, But I think the masses, the, the largest group are the people who are sort of for whatever reason, valid or not, um, because they are distracted by the other crises that they're going through in lives, they are just sort of complicit in their in- inactiveness. And I totally would count myself amongst those people. It took me such a long time to wake up to this conversation. And I think it was probably you who woke me up to it years ago. I think you caught the world's attention. Um, but those are the people that we most need to engage. And I believe that the book that you have brought out, the climate book, is specifically for those people, right? Just to arm them with Mm -hmm. the information with which they would have the power to actually enact meaningful change because they are the biggest group. They are, we are the biggest group. We are the ones who actually will have the most impact, correct? Yes, exactly. I think most people are on some level aware that something is happening, something is wrong. They sometimes read headlines, which sound quite alarming, they hear that some scientists are warning of of very large threats, but we can't really they can't really grasp that. Um and and they don't know what to do with it, that sort of concern. Um I think that is the biggest group, um, the silent majority. Uh, so I want to be a part of equipping those people with the information they need in order to to get the awareness and level of knowledge that they need, that we need in order to, to demand actual change. Um, so yes, that is exactly, that is exactly the group. We are mostly aiming our activism at, I think. Yeah. And I, while I, I, I can see when you have palpable rage in videos that go viral of you at <laughs> climate conferences where you just don't even understand why the fuck they've invited you there because <laughs> yeah. they're just lying to your face again. Yeah. Um, I don't feel as though you have rage towards the active citizen. You are aware of the fact that a lot of people are being either misled or denied the information that would make them act in a way that would move against capitalist uh, gains for the, you know, the 1%. Um, but it, I think sometimes you are positioned as this like hyper 
judgmental, angry, <laughs> irrational, moody teenager. Whereas actually you have immense compassion from everything I've seen you say in the clips that don't go viral for, for oh. everyone. And you understand that they just simply aren't armed with information that's going to be vital to their survival and vital even more so to the survival of their offspring should they have them. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit funny to me that I'm being portrayed as this, as you said, this angry teenager who just screams irrationally at people. It's quite funny because I'm probably the least angry person I know. Mm. Um, but yeah, as you say, we are not angry with the, with the people in general. There's this sort of widespread myth that it's humanity that has created the climate crisis. Um, it's not humanity that has created this. It is a few number of people, um, together with our current economic and political structures that are, have created this crisis and are continuing to fuel it. Those are the ones that we should be angry at. We know who they are. Uh, these CEOs, people in power, etc., who have purposely uh, destroying the planets, sacrificing counters of humans and things that that we like invaluable. Cause in sorry, that was. Don't worry, it's not live, so you could. Okay, Alda, skulle kunna vara lite tyst för vi spelar in en interview. Sorry, there you yeah, are being just... angry and crazy again. <laughs> 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 <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. There are some people who have purposely and knowingly misled and misguided the general population and they have been sacrificing the planet and encounters of human beings as we know it in order for them to continue making unimaginable amounts of money. Uh, we know who these people are. They are the ones that we are targeting. Um, people have been denied their democratic rights to information about the climate crisis. In my experience, the, the, the knowledge gap is so immense. I, I was, um, something that I mentioned in the book, I was part of uh, creating a survey in order to measure the general level of awareness around the climate crisis, but we couldn't use the results because, um, it was either too inaccurate or just you could make any sense of it because people just didn't know um, when what you these say, terms mean. When you say it was too inaccurate, you mean as in the answers were so inaccurate yes. that it was unpublishable? Yes. Shit. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's the level we're at. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And again, that's not down to a general stupidity of man. That is down to very selective reporting from the media. Even the media exactly. who claim, even the media who claim to be on your side, a lot of yeah. them are being, when you look into the weeds of who the media are funded by, are being funded mm. by people whose interest it is in to maintain the, the, the current speed of spending and consumption, yeah. all of yeah, which it, is in such excess. Exactly. And so many journalists that I know, they want to do more and they want to go out and do reporting about this and they want to educate themselves and treat the crisis more like a crisis, but they aren't really allowed to by either their, their, their editors or that they, they are just so afraid of being seen as activists or alarmists. Um, there's a similar patterns when it comes to scientists whose job it more or less has become to communicate this fact. It's not sci a scientist's job to communicate this. Um, a scientist's job is to create and to collect data and, and create, yeah, science. Information. It's, yeah. 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 Um, 
But since no one else is communicating it, it has fallen on, on the shoulders of scientists, children, uh, and the people who are most affected by the climate crisis to communicate this. Um, unfortunately, the most powerful voices in this world belong to those who are set on dis- destroying it. So in that way, we are quite outnumbered or outpowered or, yeah. I had um, an experience recently in which I was on a media tour for a separate project at the same time as the project came out. um, One of the countries that I'm from, Pakistan, uh, a third of the country was underwater and 50 million people were displaced. I mean, this is just, it's such an obscene statistic Mm. and one that I know that you see around the world constantly. And, um, but while I was trying to talk about it, I got cut off at every single point as soon as I would bring it up uh, as soon as I was trying to raise the alarm that a third of a country (laughs) is underwater and tens of millions of people are displaced and so many are dead to to the point where we can't even account for them yet because they're underwater still and no one in American media or British media would publish it and they would actively cut me off as soon as I would start bringing it up and and I, I don't think that's any necessarily like great conspiracy. It's not a media conspiracy, but it is just the fact that it's, it's, it, it is the inconvenient truth. It is something that nobody wants to be accountable for. And, and I'm sure that you and I both can attest to the idea that we tend to like find hysteria if a country, like if a Western country with predominantly white people is affected, we'll hear, hear about the hurricanes in the US. Mm-hmm. But globally, there will be silence when... Uh, poorer countries or less developed yeah. countries, etc., or p- countries that are predominantly full of people with more melanin in their skin. Um, those people are largely ignored. And I know that you've spoken about your own frustration about the fact that indigenous communities are the ones who are the most impacted and yet never platformed. Can you um, can you explain to the people listening to this, you know, who who aren't aware as to what exactly is happening in the countries most affected? Because I think it's been very much so hidden from us. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's exactly as you say. It's just pure um, environmental racism, climate racism and climate injustice that the people who are who have been historically more exploited are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, also the ones least responsible for it. And that is a very inconvenient fact that many in the so-called western world don't want to don't seem to want to acknowledge um, the climate crisis. When we when we talk about the climate crisis and when we think about it, we mostly think about it as something that's going to happen in a far away, distant future that's going to affect our children. Uh, that's probably one of the reasons why the school strike movement gained so much attention. But the climate crisis is a reality and has been a reality for a very long time for such a large proportion of the world's population. People are literally dying and losing their, their livelihoods. People are having to bury their children and their family members, uh, losing everything. It's just being drowned in this, in these different news stories. Not, we don't pay almost any attention to it. I mean, that's why the climate crisis is an existential crisis already today. It's not. We are seeing these consequences escalate in a way that no one expected a few decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because it's happening far away from the people who are actually governing the world, who are 
the most powerful, then it that it's not something that's on their agenda, um, unfortunately. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. There's recently been a lot of rhetoric out of the United Kingdom saying that the UK is, is apparently responsible for only several percent of the factors that are contributing to the climate crisis. Mm. And I, I see that there is significantly conflicting evidence uh, in your book to that. Can you tell me where that misunderstanding comes from? Is it the fact that the UK are outsourcing mm. the labour to other poorer countries and then benefiting from it and therefore fund it, funding it? Generally, there seems to be this universal norm that if you have the possibility to outsource your emission then countries do that, um, predominantly the countries from, from the so-called global north. And by doing so, they not only uh, have to pay cheaper wages and, and, and so on, they also, the emissions don't count in their national statistics, as well as international aviation and shipping, the burning of biomass, uh, the military. Uh, there are just so many loopholes that have been actively designed to keep the, the people in power from being held accountable. Um, when we say that our leaders haven't acted on the climate emergency or that they haven't done anything, that is a, a big lie. They have been very active, but not, not in the way that we, that we would hope. Um, but they have been actively spending their time creating these loopholes in these international frameworks that allow them to continue as usual benefiting from exploiting other people, other parts of the world, and taking credit for it. Because countries like the UK and Sweden as well say that we have been lowering our emissions for the last decade, when that is mm -hmm. not necessarily the case um, when we include all our total emissions. For example, in Sweden, where I live, only a third of our actual emissions are included in our national statistics and in our climate targets. Because we exclude consumption-based emissions. When you say when you say consumption-based emissions, can you just break down what that means? Yeah, if I buy a laptop mm -hmm. um, for, that's manufactured in China, China is the country that's accountable for those emissions and not me. Um, and since we have outsourced the production um, to countries like China um, and countries other, in other parts of the world, then we don't have to be responsible for those emissions. And that's very favorable for countries like Sweden, etc. Also, another th major thing that we exclude is the burning of biomass, um, which per energy unit emits more CO2 than other fossil fuels. Uh, but since trees are, they grow back, not in the time frame we have for the Paris Agreement, they're considered to be climate neutral. So that's another uh, blind spot um, in the international frameworks. So I think one of the biggest stories uh, right now is the fact that all this cheating, that I, which I, I would call it, is taking place and that is, mm -hmm. this is all perfectly legal and is even encouraged by the current system that we live in. This is how you were supposed to do. Oh, yeah. it's such a disgusting yeah. loophole. Like it's, it's so yeah. disgusting to have 
all of this labor and all of this consumption outsourced to countries like where I come from and yeah. then to blame us and point the finger at us and then when we go underwater it's like well they did this to themselves look how much uh pollution is coming outside that part of the world and yet you yeah. are deliberately what you're doing is you are like these countries that have been historically oppressed by western mm-hmm. nations are yeah. now in a situation where they are so desperate for money that they are going to take the jobs that yeah. are available for them you yeah. know it's like this just this grim yeah catch there's so many layers in. and layers onto this and these people are impoverished and then barely being paid and they're being hugely extorted and exploited. And and then the blame is sort of shifted onto them and their country, their country that's economy has normally been crippled by the history of yeah. the West, especially and, places like the United Kingdom yeah. and the British Empire. And adding to that, those same countries are now being either swept away by, by rising sea levels mm-hmm. or left in ruins by storms or droughts, etc. Yeah, the people are yeah. starving. I mean, where uh, I come from, I think the temperature reached either 51 or 53 degrees centigrade, which is terrifying in mm-hmm. the summer. Like this is just, it's unlivable. The crops die, the animals die, our ecosystems are are failing. And again, it's something that just feels very far away from us as we all play yeah. with our, our pet dogs in our hands yeah. we think the animals are fine yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and like you talked about the uk before we have to remember that the climate crisis is a cumulative crisis that what we do now what we emit now will stay up in the atmosphere for a very long time continuing to disrupting the biosphere um and and thus also life on earth as we know it um since because of this fact, we don't only have to think about our current and future emissions, we also have to take historical emissions into account. Um, right now we have emitted about 90% of the CO2 budget, which gives us a 67% chance of staying below 1.5 degree uh, of temperature rise, which is a limit often often used in the rhetorics. And that um, is the temperature rise that will lead to the sea levels rising by two metres? It, it it depends, but we will also, when we get to that level of warming, we'll also trigger several feedback loops and pass several tipping points as well that might lead to even more warming. It's it's all a big mess. But anyway, that's the threshold that we are aiming at right now, that we are trying to stay below. Um but 90% of the CO2 budget, the CO2 that we can emit to have a 67% chance of reaching that target, have already been emitted, uh, mostly by the countries of the so-called global north. Um, and because of the fact that the climate crisis is a cumulative crisis, you would think that these historical emissions would be at least taking up a minor part of the discussion when it comes to the climate emissions, since this is like 90%. Mm. But it's being completely ignored um, by ev- by almost everyone. Um, um, and also when it's not being ignored, it's especially, I think, by... And it's so curious that this has become a politicised issue because and it's become like a binary politicised issue given mm. that the people who are in the middle of the country who perhaps are more likely to vote Republican, let's say, in the United States or similarly in the United Kingdom, um, Conservative, uh, are almost suffering more then, you know, as they would refer to them as the elite liberals, you know, on the coasts, uh, we are being impacted 
far less than those whose entire livelihoods and stocks are going under in droughts and floods. Mm. It's it's so bizarre, but I'm seeing, you know, like I think just yesterday something came out saying, oh, climate um, scientists are... Uh, trying to actively hide the fact that the world hasn't actually gotten hotter in the last 15 years. And they're using this specific year of 1998, right, Mm. which was a freakishly hot year from what I understand. And I am a climate idiot, um, a uh, (laughs) self-professed climate um, Neanderthal, but I'm, I'm trying to learn. They specifically have chosen this one freakishly hot year and are not comparing it to 1999 or 2000 or 1997, even all of the years that actually are more consistent. And it's it's also incredibly disingenuous to only use 15 years. What would you say is your biggest frustration right now, which I know is a huge question because you have so many, but currently <laughs> what is your what is your biggest frustration? Hmm. Um, that kind of cherry picking is, of course, a source of frustration for us mm-hmm. uh, because it's so easy to do that and it's so easy to just choose a number choose one small part of of science that you use to to boost your narrative but i think the the most frustrating thing is people who are more or less aware of what's happening and yet choose not to do anything mm-hmm. um and we know that there are quite a lot of those people, uh, not least people who have very powerful positions and who have spent lots of money and resources in actively misleading the public, um, spreading disinformation, misinformation, um, in order to send a signal that the climate isn't actually destabilizing, everything is fine, we can just continue like now. Those people who say so are hysterical and so on. Because as we talked about in the beginning, so many people are unaware of the full implications of the climate crisis, but um, those who are aware or even a bit aware, um, that's the most frustrating thing. And people who say, I know that I can do something, but I, I won't because someone has to tell me what to do, even though that scientists and affected people are literally screaming at them, telling them what to do. Well, it's not that they don't know what to do. It's just that they know that it will cost them or the people that support them or keep them in power. Yeah, money. exactly. It's inconvenient. So while I know that you've been asked this question seven billion times, I'm <laughs> sorry, but it's always an opportunity to reach a new audience. When I told everyone that I was um, interviewing you, um, everyone lost their shit. I'm, I've never had a reaction like this ever uh, to a guest. Uh, and when I asked people what they would like to ask you, uh, most people just wanted me to tell you that they love you. So just to combat all of the people uh, calling you hysterical or uh, saying cruel or incredibly inappropriate things to you, uh, since you were a small child, um, I do want you to know that you are incredibly loved and respected and you... Uh, you are a very empowering human being, not just in that you give people hope, because I don't think that's something, a burden that should be on your shoulders, but you remind people what we as seemingly powerless individuals are capable of. So thank you for that. And I needed to relay that. But a lot of people are saying, what can we tangibly do right now? What can we as individuals, like we are aware that we do not bear the burden of the decision-making, but we can pressure that decision-making but could you could you lead people into some sort of empowering, galvanizing advice they can start participating in today? Yeah, of course, as, as an individual, there are many different types of individuals. Some people have 
a more responsibility than others, surely. Um, but we all have somewhat of a responsibility. Um, and I think an easy reply would be just try to educate yourself about the climate crisis, because when you know more and when you are fully aware of it, then you will more or less know what to do and what you can do, the, the do's and the don'ts. Um, but then also that has to lead to something. Um, just, I think we need to realize the power that we have as, as, as people, um, because it is the people who, who actually decide what we do or what not to do, even though that the system is completely corrupt and so on. If we would reach a critical mass with people who would demand real change, then the people in power wouldn't have any other choice but to respond to that. Um, we've seen all throughout history that the biggest changes have been led from the people. And that is something that we can definitely do again. Uh, we have so much power that, that we just have to reclaim. Um, and become an activist is, I would say, the best advice. It's very vague, but there are so many different types of, of activism and being an activist. You can do what you are best at. You can do what you want to do, what you like doing. It can be either using art and your talents to communicate this message and to spread this uh, sense of, of crisis, emergency. Or you can, you can start a strike. You can join an occupation or something like that, civil disobedience. You can go out on the streets demanding that your voice be heard. Um, there are so many different things that you can do, but get organized. Um, get in contact with people who are like-minded or search up people who, who are like-minded, who care about the same things, who have the same values and who also want to get involved because it's much easier to do something when you are many um, and to come up with things to do. Um, I would say that I am forever grateful that I became an activist. This is where I have my, my friends. This is where I have my life. I wouldn't be able to just live a, I don't know what to say, but ordinary life uh, without basically spending most of my, almost all my, my time on, on activism, because then I feel like I'm useful. I can do something. hundred um, percent. Can I, can I just add to a, one of the uh -huh. measures that we can all take today? And it's, a, it's a similar message that I preach when I'm talking about uh -huh. the evils of diet culture and what it does to all kinds uh -huh. of different parts of the world um, and ways in which it's killing people. It's just, the power that we have is not only in our voices. Our voices are so incredibly powerful, but also we've seen with Extinction Rebellion, etc. sometimes they find a way to just walk right through us yeah. and shut our voices out. The, the thing that speaks the loudest to a lot of these people, even if they deny it, is money. And to cut them off at the source of money, to cut off the things that they are funded by, to stop buying into those things, I think is something that we all need to work harder towards participating in. We have to, we have to be uh, more conscious of what it is that we are engaging in financially because we we have the power to decide who is powerful and who loses power and we can strip that power from people overnight and mm -hmm. and we have we have seen that in the last few years how malleable the world is and how adaptable it is during covid it was wild to see how fast people were able to mm -hmm. uh, bring about like com complete global change i didn't recognize the world as it was uh, mm -hmm. at such speed we were able to reconfigure entire systems so we know that we're capable of it we know that we have the power and so 
if that means looking into our consumption, if that means looking into where we are sourcing the products that we buy, all of that is where we also need to mobilize and educate ourselves. Like we, we do not look at the labels of where something was made, where something comes from, how it was, how it was brought over to our country. And that's, I think a huge step in our actual activism is, is where do you put your pound or dollar or whatever Mm. currency of the world that you come from? Because these people are kept in power by money. There's so, it's so little of it is actually whether or not they deserve to be in power, whether or not they actually have the credentials. It's mostly who is bolstering those people and how do we cripple them? I think is is, is something that I feel. Yeah. Consumer choices are, I would say, a form of activism. People... Mm -hmm. In this debate, uh, it's very common that people say we shouldn't be focusing on individual actions because we should be focusing on a larger systemic change. But also, while we should be focusing mostly on that, we also can't achieve a system change without also individuals changing their minds, their behavior. And by, for example, stop flying or becoming vegan, it's not only... Um, that you redirect the money elsewhere. It's also about changing social norms and showing to people around you that I am changing my behavior because we are in an existential emergency. And that, as you said, we can change social norms overnight. We can change the way we see things, the way we perceive the world, like overnight. A hundred percent. And we are that system, fundamentally. We might not be the ones who... who, uh, press the switch at the top, but we are the system. We uh, empower the system entirely with our attention, our money, and our, our even our algorithmic attention. Like we can starve mm-hmm. the media companies yeah. who are gaslighting us. We can starve everyone yeah. Um, yeah. in the ways in which they have been trying to starve us. And that might not be the most uh, privileged people in the West, but they are starving mm-hmm. people to death right now as we speak with their actions. Yeah. And we can show them what that feels like. If I may, because this is a a mental health podcast, I would love to kind of Mm -hmm. talk to you a little bit about that. And I I wonder, Mm -hmm. do you even feel safe to be able to talk openly and honestly about your mental health, given how often people use everything about you to discredit you? Uh, Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, I would... I would, um, of course, I choose my words because anything I said could, could and will m- most likely be used will against you. Be, yeah, yeah, and like misinterpreted and turned around one hundred times. Maybe can I can I just bring up an interview of yours that I just watched the mm-hmm. other day uh, yeah. where someone was trying. It was it was a, a journalist. I think maybe it was on the BBC. Was trying to goad you into saying that you have an do you have an affinity with King Charles that's what she was trying to do you remember this interview it happened I think not very long ago and she was saying that I know you do so many interviews but she was like you know he really cared about the climate in the 60s and people called him weird and crazy and do you feel you have an affinity do you feel you have an affinity with King Charles knowing that the fucking headline is gonna be Greta Thunberg feels affinity with the king of England (laughs) yeah um the constant dodging of those questions I watched you handle that like an ice hockey player like that was bonkers (sighs) to watch (laughs) (laughs) yeah and in the beginning when I was like I was 
15 when when those questions were starting to be directed towards me and like i i had never i i had like selective mutism i didn't speak to people for like four years can you explain what that is just for anyone who doesn't know yeah selective mutism is that sometimes you you simply cannot speak it's a very simple way of explaining it Mm -hmm. and and is that a facet of uh the autism spectrum or is that separate no it's separate but it's often linked to autism Mm -hmm. um yeah, so I, I didn't know how to speak to people. And then I, I met with these journalists who were just like trying to put me on the spot. Um, and sometimes just very unexpected, like showing up outside my house, um, and like that. And it's just like, don't you have any sense of, of dignity left? Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, it's, it's just, it's so obscene. And it's also treating you as though you are proclaiming to be the expert. That's something that I've seen in a lot of your yeah. interviews, which is why I wanted to very specifically try to mostly talk to you about. The mm-hmm. things that I do know that you know 100% about from your own experience, which is the gaslighting and the media spin and all mm-hmm. of these different things, these tangible things that people like you or me can actually do, rather than trying to yeah. challenge you on on d- degrees of temperature or statistics, when they know that you've never purported to be uh, the <laughs> scientist, you're just someone yeah. whose voice happened to catch the attention and the imagination of uh, mm. like a large portion of a generation. Um mm. Can you talk about the impact on one? And you can also tell me to fuck off, which is fine. But can you talk about the mental health impact of of being so young, being in that position? While I know that you recognise the privilege you have with your voice being heard, mm-hmm. what has like? Are you okay? <laughs> um, I it, it it depends, but but uh, <laughs> uh, of course. I do realize that I have this massive opportunity of having mm-hmm. a platform and being able to communicate that, um, while also being a bit annoyed or a bit like very annoyed that the role I've been, I, the role, role I've gotten uh, removes the focus away from others who actually need to be heard. While also I understand that they do that because it's easy for them to have a story and to have a face, um, Etc. There are so many layers onto this, and that you overthink. Um, but I think that we don't do this because it's because it's easy, but just because there's simply no other alternative. Um, and also personally, to make clear that the positive impacts of this that this has on my health um, mu- very much outweighs the negative effects. But sometimes you just want to be left alone and not. not overanalyzed by people you don't know and that you that you very well know just want to do you harm and sometimes those people are very close to you um or get close to you uh, and that's that's a bit uncomfortable yeah it's incredibly distressing um i i feel as though because of of course your age and also because of your the fact that you are uh, you were you are a woman uh, that people have mm-hmm. been so uh, intensely scrutinizing of you and on a smaller scale I definitely relate to that and I remember you know like you and I sort of kind of rose to different levels of people being very aware of us in the media around roughly the same time and I was in my 30s and I was I felt like I was sometimes drowning with stress and the feeling of of um 
there's so much to fix. There's so much to do. How wet, like Mm -hmm. how do, how, how can I spread myself across all of these different, like the pressure is so intense that one puts upon themselves. How do you, and I think a lot of young people out there right now are facing that level of responsibility of God, where do I start? And is that something that you identify with? Because especially once you, you say, I am an activist and you put your hand up and you say, I want to help. Then everyone's like, right, we need you here, 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 here. Um, How do you, how do you navigate that? I don't, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know. Sometimes, yeah, there's just, sometimes there's just not enough time. Have you learned how to select the thing that you know you can be the most I've tried to, um, but having school has been a very efficient way of just like, I have class now, I need to shut, I can't be replying to emails all lesson um, and so on, um, or whatever it may be. Um, but it's, it's difficult. Um, and then as you say, accepting the fact that you can't do everything and that mm-hmm. you, that you shouldn't be doing anyway, because of course we should leave space for others, but so much like almost all of the work that you do with activism is just meetings and st- structuring and in coordinating different people and, and like that, the, all the invisible work that people don't, don't see. Um, the moments that don't go viral. Yeah. And, and yeah. what about in kind of, and again, I, you don't have to answer these questions. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more just asking because I'm personally interested and, uh, fascinated by you, uh, as I think there are many people, <laughs> but I, I, I always wonder when someone rises to this level of of prominence at such a young age, like what that's like on a personal level when it comes to uh-huh. making friends at school and not having people <laughs> like you know, just the the imbalance of the uh-huh. fact that you don't know anything about someone who you meet and someone has all these preconceptions about you and whether that's awe or a dislike mm. of you for some reason. Can you talk about what yeah. that's like? Yeah. Wherever you go, you just, if I step outside um, I know that I'm being watched. It sounds very like, like a conspiracy, but, but people take pictures and, and just point and, and things all the time. In Sweden, that's to a much lesser extent because we don't have, our celebrity culture is yeah. not as intense as abroad, um, which is, which has made things so much easier. Like at school, people don't talk to me that often. Um, because, and it feels very nice because then I can still be left alone. It's like a safe space. Yeah. Um, and if you feel like you've made friends at school or your friends, mostly people that you've made through like activism. I, who- I would say most of my friends are the people I've met through activism, but of course at school too. Um, but I have so many different roles and different personalities that fit into those roles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes you like in, in a press crush with like, I don't know how like a hundred journalists or paparazzi surrounding you, you can't go anywhere. And, and the next day you're like in school, um, sitting in the back of the classroom, um, being quiet. How Um, do you, how do you reconcile that? Like, has that been something you've had to learn how to balance? Yes. Um, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I don't know uh, if if I if I if I'm good at it, but I'm I'm, I'm trying. I think you're doing. Yeah. I think you're doing fucking great. And and in a in a way, like some of this is. I wonder how this is impacted by, and I want to word this as delicately as possible, but when I did mention that you were coming on, there were also a lot of people who wanted to talk about, uh, who wanted me to talk about autism because there's so little Mm -hmm. representation of Mm -hmm. people who uh, are open about it in public and also women specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And autism looks so different in women because we are socialized so differently to men. And so very often... Uh, obviously not exclusively, but very often it it looks in a way. And so there are a lot of people who might look at you and the fact that you, I don't know, make eye contact or you uh, are, you speak in a way that doesn't sound like the stereotypical idea of what autism has been portrayed by Hollywood and you're very high functioning. Um, There are people who maybe doubt that you are autistic. And then on the, at the same time, there are people who disqualify everything you say because of that autism without actually understanding yeah. what it is. Um, yeah. Do you feel comfortable talking about autism with me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about was masking, right? That is a big mm-hmm, part mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of being able to function within a sort of neurotypical world. Uh, do you, would you feel comfortable explaining what masking is? Yes. It's, it's basically, it's different for everyone, but basically pretending that you are neurotypical, that you don't have autism in order to fit in, in order to not stand out in any way, because, because of different reasons, because sometimes it's just a survival mechanism, mm-hmm. um, because people treat you so differently if you would act as your true self. Um, for me, it's definitely been a part of my life for a very, very long time. When I was diagnosed, um, basically the only thing that my family was met with was like, what? Is she autistic? She's not like, like, she can't be autistic because in, in their heads, autistic people were boys playing video games, not talking to anyone. Mm. Um, it was a very stereotypical, a very clear stereotype. Um, and of course, if, if I hadn't got, gotten the right contacts, if I hadn't been sent to the right place, I wouldn't have been diagnosed. Because people would have just like, oh, well, she's just, it's just hormones or whatever people, people yeah. say. It's hormones um, or she's just weird is what a lot of people yeah. are. Like what of women specifically, it's like there's something yeah. wrong with her rather than yeah. her brain just works slightly differently. Yeah. But do you think that that has actually been, uh, I know that it, obviously like in certain ways it can be a hindrance if you are in a world that works neurotypically but mm-hmm. also for your specific line of work, I think about this um, all the time, which sounds really, cr- I think about you all the time, Greta. No, uh, I, <laughs> I, do you think that in some ways the the way in which your brain works, the capacity that you've learned to mask at means that you are able, you know, you were talking about the fact that you have to be all these different kind of people for all these different mm-hmm. facets of your life. Has that been helped or hindered by the masking i would say definitely helped mm-hmm. um i can be a completely different persona when i'm on stage which means that i don't i don't have stage fright um because i'm just so used to to masking um and then in a, in another context i'm completely different because i've learned to adapt to that environment um becoming a public figure i think has been easier for me because i'm autistic 
of course, harder too in some circumstances. Like which ways? Just, for example, being um, in a large crowd with so many cameras pointed towards you. That's a lot of... um, um, Hyper-stimulation. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And even before I was a public person, uh, walking outside, I'm always like taking notes on my environment and noticing like small details and that I have to do now as well. And I do that naturally because I always have to see like, is anyone filming me right now? Um, mm-hmm. And so on. So I notice those details anyway. So I don't have to pay that much more attention and energy on yeah on my surroundings. I also, and uh, also again, like I, I want to avoid the pitfalls of stereotyping autistic people or treating them as if they're a monolith. And if, because you say something that mm. applies to all autistic people, but I also wonder if like the, the way that certain, some autistic people can, can see things can be quite binary, which helps mm-hmm. people stay very clear on the facts and not get caught up in the nonsense right yeah. the the mm-hmm. the the games that are played around these conversations yeah. to divert from them deflect away from them to gaslight people uh there is a, a hyper focus you have for the truth and for what is straightforward and it makes mm-hmm. you a straight shooter and i think because people are not used to seeing a woman shoot straight like that where you just like there is no frill to your words whatsoever Mm -hmm. in this book as well uh which is obviously not just written by you it's written by lots of experts but you pull no punches and Mm. I think that that feels especially jarring to people because women have been socialized to pull all of our punches and to dress everything up in a way ourselves and our words in a way that is palatable to men um And that's just not something you really seem to have to try to navigate. It seems to just come from yeah. you quite naturally. Yeah, exactly. Um, that has definitely helped me uh, in activism. It's why I started activism in the first place, because I just couldn't understand why everyone around me was just so obsessed with taking part in this role play, this social game that I couldn't understand and that I didn't want to be a part of. So I was like, this is all, this is all wrong. I'm not going to be a part of it and I'm going to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is the only thing that's right. Um, I have very strong principles in that way. And I don't care about be- being mocked in the same way or being unpopular. So I, I don't like choose words, um, in order to please people. I don't say like, if I say this, then people will become uncomfortable because this is the truth and this is what we need to convey. And also we need to be uncomfortable as we're never going to change anything. Exactly. The only time we, we ever make a change is in discomfort. Yeah. In a crisis that's created by injustice and exploitation, you can't expect there not to be some level of being uncomfortable. A hundred percent. And you talk about the fact that therefore you don't really care about pleasing people like which I very much so identify with. Like you don't like, I, I, I literally, do, I literally fundamentally don't care. Mm. Like I don't want to upset people. I don't want to hurt people. Of course. Like I, I have like an element of, of moral responsibility to try to be a good, mm. per, the best person I can be, be careful, but I'm really not interested in being liked <laughs> at all by more than about four people. There's about four people I really want to like me because I want to be around yeah. them. But everyone else, I, I, you know, I'm not interested in that. And, and 
and you receive so much trolling. I mean, you, the most epic takedown of the accidental takedown of Andrew Tate occurred this year, um, <laughs> simply because he interacted with you and your response garnered so much attention that then, you know, it led to uh, total chaos for him. Um, mm. But uh, is that also, would you say, like part of your kind of fibre, the ability to, is that part of what makes you... Um, unaffected by the amount of trolling that you get because your ego isn't in this i would say yes i don't care like the slightest what people might think of me if i do this or, or that i just care if, if it's if it's morally right if mm -hmm. in the future i will be able to look back at this and say like yeah i did what was right mm -hmm. uh, for example uh, in the case with andrew tate I didn't know who he was. When I, um, I actually didn't really either until you said it. <laughs> um, but I was like, he has a lot of followers. He won't like, it won't bother him. It won't ruin anything for him. Um, <laughs> the irony. Oh God. And I was sick. I had the flu when I was, I was bored when I was writing that. Um, oh. And I was like, huh, yeah. It was, it was incredibly funny and a victorious moment for so many people online. Because <laughs> it's so rare in this day and age you ever get to see justice. We rarely mm. ever get to see, we talk about justice all the time, but we never see it play out. We never see, <laughs> you know, we talk about karma all the time, but you never see mm. instant karma ever play out. And it's so yeah. funny and amazing. And they're like the schadenfreude of it, but also just the, the vict victory of it was, um, it really, it really boosted our year. Thank you for that. Yeah. Really. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. Your life is so ridiculous. Yes. It's just been completely ridiculous. Do you ever think about what you would have done uh, alternatively if the world wasn't going to hell in a handbasket uh, climate-wise? Is there, is there a, a different path that you have ever had in mind? Many. I don't know. Um, there, are, there isn't a lack of other issues that, that are very urgent, mm -hmm. so I will probably be an activist for that too. Um, I, but I don't see myself living like a life going to a nine to five job and then not doing anything, like not being active, not being a democratic, be an active democratic citizen, being an activist. Um, I don't think I would handle that very well. Yeah. You, you enjoy the, the, the life of kind of service and, and there's also yeah. just such a, it's, it's the lack of the logic in the way that people conduct themselves that drives me yeah. mad as to how short-sighted mm. people can be. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you are coming to the end of school, that you have been able to like regain <laughs> some normal, like sort of when I use the word normal, but like, you know, some mm -hmm. sort of facets yeah. of your youth because so much of your childhood has been, and I know you don't consider it taken away because you've been able to do this extraordinary thing, but so much of your developmental years have been lived in the public eye in in service of us and it's such a ginormous sacrifice and I I can't tell you how much all of us appreciate it and are massively moved by it because it's it reminds us all that we have so much more to do and 
you live in my head rent free uh, every time I'm making a decision about travel or <laughs> for dinner. Like <laughs> the, the the Greta Thunberg, how dare you? Like comes into my head, <laughs> and I uh, find myself like jolting backwards. Um, and I, as many others, on are on a path to doing better. And and your book um, is is bleak as the word gets used by a lot of people it's terrifying but um I found it very motivating and and I I, and I would love for you to just talk to me a little bit about hope because the other overwhelming question that came to me for you is how do we maintain hope and I know how much Uh you dislike that question so Mm -hmm. I would like for you to answer that the way that you always do in in as to your practical approach to hope yeah I think that the way we maintain hope is just simply to create it ourselves. We can't just sit on our couch waiting for someone else to do something, waiting for something to happen. Hope is, is like a verb. It's something that you do. If you, if you create change, that will bring hope. When we start to act, hope will be everywhere. So instead of, instead of waiting for hope, we should create it. And I find also so much hope in, in the community uh, that I am in, in, in this activism, in all, all the friends I have here, all the people I love here, and we're doing this together. And also, of course, people li- like you, for example, people who are willing to learn and who are starting to engage and who are starting to shift these social norms. I find that very hopeful. Hope is not, um, hope for me is not that politicians and people in power are saying that we are starting to to do something when they're obviously not we are moving in the wrong direction the emissions are on the rise um still um for me hope is the people and the ability that the people has when we actually decide to do something Mm -hmm. so it comes from results your hope comes from results that you actively see i think i feel very similarly that i Mm. i can't think of it as the surreal esoteric thing that I just wish for, because then I feel very disempowered. I feel very yeah. disempowered by, um, yeah. and I, I don't mean all prayer, but the prayer for change. I only ever feel empowered when I use my power to activate change. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very important message because I think, I think, and I, I wonder what you feel about this, but I think the system, the system of politics, the system of media, all of it is designed to make itself sound so complicated that we all feel helpless. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And they, they're benefiting from it. If we feel helpless, then we stay inside. We don't go out on the streets and because we don't think that we can make a difference. So as long as we feel powerless, they win because then they don't have any pressure on them to, to change anything. And then we will maintain status quo. So there's a reason why we are being made to, fe- to feel powerless. Is there a message you have to anyone who's listening to this right now about that hope, about that power, or about anything? Maybe that right now we, we are moving deeper and deeper into uncharted territory for humanity. Um, we are li- living through the beginning of an existential crisis that is escalating as we speak. Um, everyone is needed to change this, to, to change course. Um, if you get involved now, you will still be among the pioneers because there are so few people involved compared to how many we need to be. Um, 
So it's, and also the fact that it's never too late to save as much as we can possibly save. There will always be, always be things left to save. Yeah. And, and if ever you need a reminder that that's possible, just remember COVID. Just remember <laughs> that we never thought of a world in which everyone could lock down or everyone could take certain vaccines or everyone that we that suddenly disabled people were told who've been told their whole lives you can never be hired because you have to work from home suddenly that entire world shifted mm. including hollywood like the, the most remote <laughs> job was able to shift to uh digital and working from home and kind of hasn't gone back mm-hmm. even post pandemic so i i urge you to remember that anything is possible when we really really care when we develop our own hyper focus for the issues at hand and we will only benefit fit from it. Greta, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for this book, the climate book. It is so clearly written and um, it is, uh, I think, a, a deeply hopeful and and motivating book. Uh, before you go, will you just tell me, not in pounds and kilos, <laughs> what do you weigh? I weigh lots of um, engagement, activism and um, I think I can say hope, um, in a way, um, also nerdy excitement (laughs) to learn more things and to do, and to do everything that I feel needs to be done. Um, and also lots of jigsaw puzzles, um, crocheted frog hats, Mm -hmm. uh, carrots, um, frozen mango, um, and lots of other things. That <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the best and most specific highways we've ever. <laughs> right, I'm going to go and try some frozen mango immediately. Yeah. Uh, you're the best. Come back anytime and yeah. as ever. And also, I want to I want to say a big thank you to you for for doing everything that you're doing for using your platform. I know it, that it means so much for so many people and for doing this podcast and highway. I'm truly grateful for that. Um, Right back at you times a thousand. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iWeigh. Lastly, over at iWeigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iWeighPodcast at gmail.com. And now... We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. Here's an I weigh from one of our listeners. I weigh my empathy. I weigh my sobriety. I weigh the colour of my skin. I weigh the poetry I write. I weigh the grace and forgiveness I finally gave myself. I weigh the tools I picked up along the way in my journey of healing and growth. I weigh passing those tools on.